Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome everyone to the Movie Marquee. Today's showing will be the 1989 release from director Cameron Crowe, Say Anything. With me as always is Ken. The rain on my car is a baptism. The new me, Iceman, Powerloid. My assault on the world begins now. And Ted. He's gone. She gave me a pen. I gave her my heart. She gave me a pen. And I'm Eric. You must chill. You must chill. All those lines will be explained as we review Say Anything. Ted, tell us a little bit about the particulars of this movie. Say Anything is directed by Cameron Crowe with a screenplay by Cameron Crowe. It comes in with a running time of 100 minutes. It was released on April 14, 1989. It had a budget of $16 million and had a box office gross of $21.5 million. Say Anything stars John Cusack as Lloyd Dobler. Ione Sky as Diane Court, John Mahoney as Jim Court, Lily Taylor as Corey Flood, Polly Platt as Mrs. Flood, Bebe Newworth as Mrs. Evans, Amy Brooks as DC, Lauren Dean as Joe, Pamela Adlin as Rebecca, China Phillips as Mimi, Jeremy Piven as Mark, Eric Stoltz as Valerie, Joan Cusack as Constance Dobler, Jason Gould as Mike Cameron, Philip Baker Hall as the IRS boss, Joanna Frank as Mrs. Kerwin, and Don Castellaneta as Diane's teacher. Philip Baker Hall. You know what I remember Philip yep. Baker Hall from? If we're um, thinking the same person? I think we are. Seinfeld, Bookman, Library right. Cop. <laughs> Library Cop. Beautiful. And is that the same China Phillips from Wilson Phillips, is it? No, I don't believe okay. so. Wasn't sure. I don't believe so. It Did actually is. Anything? Is it? Is, is it actually, the same China Phillips? Okay. Yes, it oh, is wow. the same China Phillips. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. The more you know. Totally different look on her. Totally different yeah, look. Yeah, Think about that. Well, what did the critics think of Say Anything? When we go to Rotten Tomatoes, it's a certified fresh and 98%. Whoa. And it has an audience score of 85%. Now, going through Rotten Tomatoes, I only was able to find two negative reviews. And one of them really isn't that negative, but the only real hard copy negative review I could find was from this guy. I don't know when he wrote it, but it was sometime in the early 2010s, so it wasn't even when the movie was released. But the only semi-negative review, and then we'll get into the positive reviews because that's really all I could find, was by the staff of the magazine Variety. Variety doesn't have anything but a staff that writes this stuff. I swear, there's no person at Variety that writes reviews by themselves. Right, unless it's positive. Then somebody will put their name to it. But if it's a quasi-negative review, all of a sudden it's just the staff. They said, Cusack and Sky's relationship develops nicely and believably, but Crow has not written an entirely convincing character for the latter to play. And they ended with saying, it's a half-baked love story full of good intentions, but uneven in the telling. Whatever 
That's not even that, an extremely bad review. Yeah, and that is as far as it goes, as far as a negative review. The ones that I found that were very positive, these are the, the heavy hitters. For positive reviews, we'll start off with Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader. His review stated, at last, a teenage love story with real characters instead of cliches, poses, and attitudes. Karen James of the New York Times, the film is all charming performances and grace notes, but there are plenty of worse things to be. She gave it a three out of five. You had Hal Henson, I believe we've talked about him before, from the Washington Post. It's hard to remember a recent love story, maybe Moonstruck, that's as involving as this one. This is not to suggest that the two movies are in the same league, but this is a teen movie that transcends its teen limitations, and I think adults will respond to it as fully as kids do. And writer and director Cameron Crowe takes a revolutionary approach to his teen characters. He treats them as if they are human beings. Dave Kerr from the Chicago Tribune, I don't know where Gene Siskel was this week, but he said, it's a complex, naughty, and at times even uncomfortable. Its world has a weight and heft that makes its ultimate romanticism seem genuinely transcendent. It's genuinely magical. Julie Salomon from the Wall Street Journal said, Crow knows how to shape a scene, and he's never cheap with characterization. Adults are permitted to be as complex as their children. It's a rare event in pictures. And then there's a couple of things here that Roger Ebert had to say from the Chicago Sun-Times. And, of course, he's our muse, essentially. This was also included with his Great Movies collection, because it was a four out of four stars. He says, Say anything depends, above all, on the human qualities of its actors. Cusack and Skye must have been cast for their clear-eyed frankness, for their ability to embody the burning intensity of young idealism. A movie like this is possible because its maker believes in the young characters and in doing the right thing and in staying true to oneself. The sad teenage comedies of recent years are apparently made by filmmakers who have little respect for themselves or their characters and sneer because they dare not to dream. Do you think that's a jab at John Hughes? No, I think it's because of what he says here in a second. And he goes on to say, Most people go to love stories in order to identify in one way or another with the lovers. Usually they are unworthy of our trust, especially in the modern breed of teenage movies that celebrate cynicism, vulgarity, and ignorance. Say anything is kind of ennobling. I would like to show it to the makers of a film like Slackers and ask them if they do not feel shamed. Say anything exists entirely in a real world. It is not fantasy or a pious parable. It has characters who we sort of recognize and is directed with care for the human feelings involved. When Entertainment Weekly recently chose it as the best modern movie romance, I was not surprised. That's the highest praise you could possibly imagine. I don't think he was taking a shot at John Hughes, because Hughes would have been a little bit before this movie. He was out of the 16 Candles. Yeah, he was like 84 to 86 was his big years. Yeah. I think it's more of the transition into the early 90s movies where the teenage romantic comedy tended to be kind of one-dimensional and kind of crappy for the most part. Because even in the mid-90s, you had all that crap with Freddie Prince Jr. and those He's all that comes to mind. Yeah. Say anything's kind of like, like almost a unicorn. We'll get into all of that. 
pretty rare that we have movie reviews that are mostly extremely positive. Even the negative are not totally negative. They had some good things to say early on in the negative reviews. That's pretty cool. That one by Variety, I guess it's supposed to be negative, but it's not really that negative. Like I said, this guy that I found that did have a negative review... He's not even listed as one of the top critics. He's from 7M Pictures. His review was written in 2011. His name is Kevin Carr, so I don't want to put this dude on blast, but his thing that was negative, he says this is an iconic role for Cusack and easily one of the movies that made him a respectable actor today, but it's a negative review. So I didn't even bother to read the rest of the review because he's writing it in 2011. Now, granted, Roger Ebert review I read was based off of his great movies collection, so it was 2002, so it was a little bit after. Even back in the day, if you watched Siskel and Ebert, they couldn't have been more in love with this movie. They both gave it two thumbs up, and if they could have given it three or four thumbs up a piece, they would have. It's one of those glowing reviews that they gave on the show. Very cool. Ken, why don't you go over the plot of this exciting movie that we're going to be talking about here? I guess I can say anything, right? You can say anything. How long have you been holding that one in? (laughs) Actually, only 10 seconds. Okay. Anyway, at the end of the senior year of high school, Lloyd Dobler falls for Diane Court and plans to ask her out, though they belong to different social circles. Lloyd's parents are in England on Air Force duty, so he lives with his sister Constance, who is a single mother. Lloyd has no plans for his future except for kickboxing. Diane comes from a sheltered academic upbringing and lives with her divorced father, Jim, who owns a retirement home where she works. She is due to take up a prestigious fellowship in Britain at the end of the summer. Lloyd asks Diane to accompany him to their after-graduation all-night party. She agrees, and it's a surprise to all her classmates when they see her there. Their next date is a dinner at the court household where Lloyd fails to impress Diane's family, and her dad is informed that he's under investigation by the Internal Revenue Service. Diane takes Lloyd to meet the residents of the retirement home, and he teaches her to drive the manual transmission for Tempo that her dad got her for a graduation present. Their relationship grows intimate, and they have sex to her father's concern. Lloyd's musician friend Corey, who has never gotten over her cheating ex-boyfriend Joe, she wrote 65 songs about Joe, and she decided to sing them all at that party. So Corey warns Lloyd to take care of Diane. Diane's dad urges Diane to break up with Lloyd, feeling he's not appropriate match, and suggests that she give Lloyd a pen as a parting gift. Diane, worried about her father, tells Lloyd she wants to stop seeing him and concentrate on her studies, and tells him to take her pen. Devastated, Lloyd seeks the advice from Corey, who tells him to be a man. The IRS cuts off Jim's credit, and his credit cards are declined when he tries to buy Diane a luggage set, and and the investigation drags on. At dawn, Lloyd plays In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel while standing under her open bedroom window with a booting box over his head. The next day, Diane meets with the IRS, who explains that they have evidence suggesting Jim had been embezzling funds from his retirement home residence. He advises her to accept the fellowship as matters with her father will worsen. After Diane discovers cash concealed at home, her dad tells her he stole the money to give her financial independence, justifying it by saying he provided better care to the victims of the embezzlement than the families did. Distraught, she reconciles with Lloyd at the gym, where he's training to be a kickboxer and actually gets his nose broken when she walks in. By the end of the summer, Jim has been incarcerated on a nine-month sentence. 
Lloyd visits him at the prison and says that he will go with Diane to Britain. Jim reacts with anger, mainly because his daughter wasn't there. Lloyd gives him a letter from Diane saying she cannot forgive him, but she arrives to say goodbye anyway, and they embrace. She gives him the pen she gave Lloyd, asking him to write her in London. Lloyd confronts Diane, who is afraid of flying on their flight. The scene comes to an end and the plane explodes. I mean, the scene comes to an end and the light, that little sound when the no smoking and fastening your seatbelts goes off. And we are to assume that everything works out. They the call end. it a ding. Ding! That's an era gone by, the no smoking sign. The no smoking sign. Now you're dating the movie a little bit, right? Because I thought if the babies were on the plane and they were crying, they knew something I didn't know. Anyway, that's the plot of the movie of Say Anything. Cool. So we'll keep rolling with you, Ken. When was the first time you saw Say Anything? I would say I saw it in my senior year of high school. This was a very popular movie for the lady folks in my school because of the song In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. All the girls loved the song. And all the boys thought that if they played the song in front of their house, that they would come running to them. So, of course, guys wanted to see this movie, too, because they wanted to know how they can get a woman to like them. And I'm probably one of those guys at that time. So this was kind of almost a perfect date movie to see when you're in high school. Mm. How about you, uh, Ted? Yeah, I was trying to think of the first time I saw the movie. It wouldn't have been the first run of this movie. It would have definitely been on video. It would have probably been late in my high school years, a senior or a freshman in college, that I would have seen this for the first time. Because I do like John Cusack, but here's the thing, too. I also like Cameron Crowe. We kind of established that back when we started the podcast, when we did Almost Famous and Jerry Maguire. So it wouldn't have surprised me if it would have been around that time as well. I can't exactly pin down when I saw it. This is one of those movies, though, that even though I hadn't seen it, there are parts of this movie that are so ingrained into the pop culture of life. I mean, that's become iconic. Lloyd holding the boombox outside of her window. That's been spoofed so many different times and redone and done again. And so it's one of those things that was always there. But kind of a funny thing is when I started watching this movie again for the podcast, I had kind of one of those Mandela moments where I actually thought it was a different movie. I actually thought that he and John Mahoney got into a huge fight while they were having dinner. And that was what ended up resulting in him holding up the boombox. So it was kind of a weird moment. I actually enjoyed how it turned out here much better than the way I thought it originally went. All right. Kind well, of weird. Ted obviously dropping acid uh, when he watched this movie, because I don't know where you tie those two scenes together. I don't, I don't know what, just somehow when it was put into my brain, into the hard drive of my brain, it got a little scrambled. That's but, fair enough. When did Let's you see, see it, Eric? Well, I wish I could give you a time frame. I honestly have no idea. It came out in 89. That was my freshman year in high school. I know I did not see the movie, but I remember the song. I love Peter Gabriel. I think his So album came out in 86. 87. So that was a real big hit for him. And if I remember right, In Your Eyes was a reissue, wasn't it? Didn't it come out in the early 80s? Yeah, this was a reissue. It was reissued for the soundtrack and just flew like a rocket to number one. It was played all over the place and you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. I remember that. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great song. Cameron Crowe sent this song to Peter Gabriel and Peter Gabriel agreed to have it used in this movie, but he wanted a better ending. It wasn't known uh, to Cameron Crowe at the time that he actually sent him the movie Wired. 
And so uh, Cameron didn't send it to him. John Belushi he had, wired? He, yeah, the John Belushi yeah. thing. At this point in time, I guess Peter Gabriel had like stacks and stacks of movies uh-huh. that were sent to him for people wanting to use his music. And he had gotten confused with Say Anything and wired the John Belushi story. And he refused and said, no, you can't use my music because I don't want to put over the part where John Belushi, where he overdoses. And Cameron Crowe's like, that's not my movie. What are you talking about? That's totally not my movie. So Peter Gabriel went back and watched Say Anything and he's like, okay, yeah, definitely. you can use the." I had had a different resource that said that he actually said yes to wire. So I guess I was misinformed by that. Yeah, he was not happy. I don't want my song to be associated with John Belushi overdosing. Did Cameron Crowe direct Wired? No. No, I don't believe so. Okay. How he got mistaken by it all. I mean, he was hot, like you said, at the time with the album. So... Yeah, because this wasn't 89 around at the same time as Sledgehammer, too. No, it's like 86, 87. Two or three years earlier. He was super hot. He was on fire. Genesis was on fire, his predecessor band. It was good times for P. Gabriel and and the band. To continue my first time seeing it, I don't know. Probably after high school. But I can tell you that the first time I saw this movie, I'll give you a spoiler alert here. I fell in love with it. Bought a copy of it. That was a VHS copy, so I'm dating myself there. I mean, I've upgraded since then. I do actually still have it. One of my favorites. It really is. And I probably watch this thing once a year at minimum. When we said we were booting this one up, I was pretty excited. So people don't know this about Eric. Eric has every format of movies out there. Well, he has Laserdisc and he has VHS tapes. He's probably got a reel-to-reel somewhere in in his collection. I have reel-to-reel for audio, but not video. HD Um, DVD. Obviously, Blu-ray. We've got the laser disc. I have Fatal Attraction on beta that someone gave me, but obviously I can't play it. Funny thing is that you do play most of these formats. You still look at oh, yeah. stuff on Laserdisc and VHS. Oh, yeah. and... Absolutely. For all the youngsters listening out there, the older formats, your VHS, your Laserdisc, even your DVDs, they play so much better on a tube television. They look so much better on a tube set. When you try and play them on an HD TV, it just does not hold up, unfortunately. Not at all. Mm-mm. I watched this version of Say Anything on 4K, and to be honest with you, I didn't realize it was 4K. You have this like, on 4K? Yeah, this has a 4K digital. That's so. a little deceptive, to be honest with you. However, I looked at two different formats. I watched it on YouTube TV as a 4K, and I watched it on Vudu, and it is better on the Vudu than on the YouTube. I thought there wouldn't be I, no difference, but there was a slight difference. Yeah, I watched it on HBO Max. We streamed that through the Apple TV. It was really good quality, and then I purchased it through Apple Digital, and it's a Dolby Atmos compatible and everything like that. At this point in time, there's not a whole lot more that some of those movies that they can be done with. You can only upscale it and remaster so so many times. It's going to even get harder because this was still shot on film. But as we start to get into the more of the digital shot movies, there's really nothing that can be done to upgrade them from high definition to 4k because most of them are in 2k anyway right not much to so but the actual film versions there's certain movies that can be upgraded essentially infinitely and one of those is lawrence of arabia which looks great i've got it on blu-ray and it looks phenomenal on blu-ray and they're releasing it on 4K. And they said that the upscaling, there's even a dramatic upgrade over the Blu-ray version. Another one we were talking about back when we did The Shining in 2001. Mm-hmm. Those releases on 4K are incredible. 
are just absolutely stunning. For me, I watched this one on good old DVD, got to see some of the deleted scenes, some of the Mm -hmm. extra scenes, which those scenes were all clearly shot in film. They were unedited, raw Mm -hmm. footage film. And it was kind of cool as I'm watching the deleted scenes. So what they did, I don't know if Cameron Crowe did this or if this is just producers or whatever. So they would show the deleted scenes in color, grainy, if you will, like the raw footage. And then when it linked in with the scene from the movie, the scene was in black and white. So it had a color change from black and white to color to let you know what was originally in and what wasn't. Huh. Kind of neat. These things were pretty bad, though. They were horrible. There was nothing in there that really tied anything more together. There Um, was a scene there, I believe, Diane, and I think it was her teacher. And he's hitting on her. He's hitting on her, yeah. Basically, he said... I only wish that you were older. And I'm yeah. just like, oh, I'm cringing thinking. It was. Oh. It was cr- And the way she reacted was very weird. And there were other scenes. I'm like, this is a totally different movie than what I'm watching here. I don't know how these scenes would even fit. I don't know. That courtroom scene was kind of weird, too. You, like, take a picture of Ronald Reagan and show, hey, how wonderful this guy is. And then he compared him to, like, one of the guys that are at his nursing home. That scene was him trying to expand more nursing homes. There was one where they're interrogating him, asking him questions about his embezzlement. Right. And he's like giving like coffee to... Yeah, coffee, water. One of the patients dropped a magazine and I guess the guy didn't do anything and he yelled at her. Do you want to read that? Do you want to read that? It's just really horrible stuff there. I'm so glad they really cut this because I didn't find any of the extras and the lead scenes to be worth the value. So good job on the editing here. Yeah. The alternate scenes of him holding the radio, like different positions and different mm-hmm. scenes of that. Yeah, I'm glad they went with what they went with. Well, I'm glad that they went with the song that they ended up overdubbing because the yeah. song that they used in that scene is not in your eyes. Fight for I your right to party. You know, it wasn't that, <laughs> but... Dancing um, by Abba. Yeah. Go your own way, basically, with that. <laughs> right? That's a great soundtrack. I've got the soundtrack on CD, and I, I love listening to it. They chose not to use this You're... song because of the fact that I guess it played out too much of what actually happens in the movie, that Cameron Crowe thought it would ruin the movie for anybody who wanted to see it. The actual song being played during the filming was Turn the Other Way by Fishbone, and I then In Your Eyes was added post-production, and then what you were talking about, Ken, Cameron commissioned the Smithereens to write the movie's theme song. They came up with A Girl Like You. Great song. And Crowe thought the lyrics were too leading. They outlined the entire plot, so he rejected it in favor uh. of Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. A Girl Like You was included in their next album. It was included in the movie of Backdraft. Yeah. The song by the Smithereens. I'm they didn't have Nancy movie... Wilson uh, write it. Well, she does a lot of the orchestration. Score. Yeah, yeah, her score, name's all over it. Which, this isn't one of her better scores, but this is one of the first times you see usage of Red Hot Chili Peppers and uh, Soundgarden, too. Mm-hmm. It's starting to move into that next phase of... Grunge. Of rock and roll, the Seattle. That's Seattle. That's a really awesome tie-in because Lloyd Dobler wears a Fishbone T-shirt. And the Clash. And the Clash, of course. But that whole Seattle music scene was really starting to change in around 1989. Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Well, yeah, Pearl Jam started off with a different name before they became Pearl Jam. All of those Seattle groups were really underground at that point. I thought it was pretty cool, too, that they included a scene of them in the coffee shop, too. Because, of course, that's the other thing that Seattle's known for. Coffee? Is coffee shops. How about that? Do you guys know what other band is 
based out of uh, Seattle, Washington? Related huh. to this movie? Related to this movie? No. Kind of? Heart. Oh, well, yeah, Heart, of Heart's course. Heart's out of Seattle. And this was something we really brought up with Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe's connection to the music here. He's not lost his finger on the pulse of what is going on, and he sets the movie in Seattle. Yeah, you have the Peter Gabriel. He's mainstream, but puts it in with groups that aren't mainstream. It's like a time capsule of the time of Seattle where things were shifting. The tastes were shifting from the 80s pop into the grunge movement. I hate to use the word grunge. That I guess that's what it's called. What else would you call it? Alternative it's, rock? Alternative, yeah. Because grunge was kind of used as like a derogatory term for Yeah, a lot but of now those. it's kind of endearing. It is, because we've made it endearing. Because right, that was right. Our, that's our music. Uh, I think it was more of the look than it was the sound. The, the yeah, look. that too. Lloyd and all of the kids in this that are graduating in 1989 or 88 there, you can start to see the transition to more of a grunge type of alternative look. Absolutely. Yeah, because you have a, a bunch of kids that still kind of have the 80s hairdo going but then you have mm -hmm. but then you have that 90s look that is also in there so it's a a nice blend of going out of one era into a new era and i think that's the other thing about this movie is the way they're dressed the way they look that says oh this movie is so outdated except for maybe that one guy who gets drunk and passes out on the uh bathroom floor the guy who has the flock of seagulls yeah, uh, haircut yeah. in the deleted scenes remember when he's in the car he's like i went to the barber and i said i wanted to simply red look does this look like simply red to you <laughs> the yeah. guy who plays that is actually barbara streisand's son no is it really yeah. no kidding wow it's her son with elliot gould nice isn't he yeah, a little cool. bit of a guitarist? Yeah, he did something with music. Jason Gould. Too. Yeah. But yeah, that whole character, I don't get that whole character, but that's fine. He asked Lloyd first about how he got Diane, but his whole aesthetic and everything about him does not scream that he's looking to find a chick. To, to go out with. I think it, he's questioning a few things there, maybe? I think so, especially with the haircut and everything. It's just in the closet. The actor is, actually came out as gay in, when he turned 21. So There you go. Yeah, it's kind I of like mean, a Judas Priest look there with the jacket. He has a bunch of different things going on there. He's one of the more interesting characters, that's for sure. You know, if we're talking about the party, what is this a high schooler is having a big open kegger? Eric Stoltz's character isn't a high schooler. No, no, he's not. He's, but, 20, he's 22. Right, but dude, it's not like, you know, hidden or, you know, you got the right. guidance counselor going there, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's just yeah, like, hey. I, I wanted to ask this question. She is, in the credits, her title is Mrs. Is she married to Eric Stoltz's character? No, no relation. Has to be too young to be a guidance no, counselor. No, no, she's not married. She's just showing up because she likes a good party. The, that's odd that the high school guidance counselor yeah. would end up at this end-of-the-year party. She's a very attractive high school guidance well, counselor. Yeah, but she's, it, it she, is she has to be right out of college. Well, you got to think about Must it. Be. In today's standards, come on. A guidance counselor showing up to any type of high school party? Okay, that's almost grounds for termination right off the bat. No, it would be. Yeah, but yeah. These, are, these are guys oh, that okay. graduated. All They're right. supposed to be all like over 18. I mean, I'm sure as far are. as being at all night, I mean, let's be honest. I did this when I was like 17, oh. 18 myself going to these all night kiggers and and they were usually hosted by a guy who was 21, 22 years old, sure. who was able to get all the beer. But right. his friends were basically just high school kids. 
yeah. is Matthew McConaughey's character in Dazed and Confused. Oh, right. I love that character right, so right, much. Right, right. Love it. You know what I like about high school girls? I get older, but they always but they stay the same, stay the same age. That's right. And that's not creepy as hell. <laughs> that's not creepy at all. That's McConaughey to a T. Never change his personality, man. It's, it's really weird, though, that Eric Stoltz's character, he goes up by, what, Valerie? Yeah. They make it sound like this guy's been doing it for decades or something I know, like right? That. Right. They make it sound every year he goes into hiding, and then he only pops out once a year. Like, he's like a well, groundhog or you, something hey, like come that. Come on. That's, What's the that's kid's 22? That's a pretty damn nice house for 22. Well, He's that's still... what made me wonder if they were connected in some way. He's it would living make... at home still. I don't Parents know. Parents are out. Parents are out every it's... year at the same time. So, you know, yeah, maybe they're week. going to Europe. I mean, okay, we're reading a little bit into it, but there's maybe. no way in hell he owns that house. Let's see, you know, let's see, Seattle had a big tech boom, so maybe he's a tech guy. Who knows? Maybe. Just maybe he's a coffee magnet. A... I don't know. It's one of those interesting things. But yeah, the whole idea that he comes out of out of hiding <laughs> for once a year, it's it's kind of fun. He probably has a restraining order where he can't go next to school, so he has to wait for the kids to come to him. This party is very reminiscent of parties that I went to. I mean, you had your clicks all over. You had that right. one person that was always playing a guitar or music, and everybody was sitting around that person. You had your drunk people in the bathroom hugging the toilet. You had all these things. So when I watched this again, it took me back and made me remember all the times that I had in, in high school and, and in my early 20s. Where would a uh, Kenny D be at uh, at that party? I would be bouncing around from one click to another because that's kind of like my thing is like I never belonged to any one click. I would probably say in high school, I was probably a ghost. After high school, I just bounced around everybody. I wanted to like relate to everyone. You'd have been and, hugging the toilet. One year I went to this party and they fed me beers to the point where I got sick. I drank like a whole case of Budweiser or something like that, like 24 pack. And they gave me pizza. Well, let's just put it this way. I felt bad for the girl because I didn't quite make the toilet. Oh, so no. the sink and the mirrors, uh, yeah, there might have been a little clean do afterwards. Um, she politely asked me to leave. And then yeah. I proceeded to throw up in her bushes and then <laughs> throw up on the side of my best friend's car at the time. But that was like the first time I majorly drank because when I was in high school, I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. And this was like my first time. So they thought it would be funny to see how Ken react. The blame should be on them, not on myself. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Back to the movie. High school exploits. That's a whole new podcast here. in itself. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I got a lot of stories about oh, saying anything I'm in my, sure in my you life. Do. Oh, so, I'm sure. Because that's what I thought this movie was about, about saying anything, so I could tell you guys everything. Okay. And there'd be no repercussions because... Well, true. There, There's no judging here. Until among, my wife amongst hears, friends. Hears, hears it, and then she'll be judging. It is what it is. It's it is what it is. stuff that made you who you are. I agree here with Ken a lot, especially the party scene... It's something that I think everybody's kind of lived. And I think Cameron does an amazing job here making it seem relatable to everybody. It's not played off as a joke. I mean, even though there's funny parts of it, it's not just tossed away. It's an actual integral part. And actually, the way he uses it to help develop their relationship, because he's always checking in on her, even though they're not talking, he, she knows that he's checking in on her. And this is the first party she's ever gone to. She's, she's kind of breaking right. away from the hold that her father had on her. I feel like she was feeling a little awkward because whenever oh, sure. he would check on her, she would give this look like, 
what the heck is wrong with this guy? You're like, oh, oh yeah. he's wearing the bag, I think, over his head, or at least it looks like it's over his yeah. head. She gives this look like, oh, goodness. But it is until when she's hanging out with Corey. Corey tells her how much a great guy Lloyd is that she goes, oh, he checks up on me. And right. then it seems like there's some type of relationship. But up to then, it's like she's kind of avoiding him. Every time he sees her, she kind of goes the other direction. It just seemed kind of weird at first. I would think that this is your first major party. I thought she would be more clean to him. Yeah, complete opposite. All these, Every, all these but everyone people. there was pretty accepting of her and pretty excited that she showed up, actually. And right. that's interesting they, since they weren't clapping for her. No, her not at all. Because her speech sucked. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think her speech was actually cool. Her speech I mean, blew, dude. I mean, I love the fact that she it's said horrible. that she was scared. Well, yeah. That, that, that part was I, awesome. If you're, if you're not at that point, I mean, what, what I, is knew the, the deal? I knew the guy who gave our valedictorian speech. What's the deal with the guy singing Greatest Love of All? Oh, goodness Oh, gracious. my God. That is so typical of somebody doing something stupid yeah. at graduation. I don't know why the school allowed him to do that. Right. But it's a high school thing. Nobody in their right mind would get up and do that. And really? I guess my graduation was really boring then because we didn't have any of that. Oh, ours, yeah, we were really boring. Was too. The only you thing I can think these, of is this guy stories. was probably the most popular guy in school. And it looked like popular. Joe, didn't it? It looked like it was Joe. Joe. I think. Yeah, it was it Joe? Joe. He's yeah. A, yeah, because he's an asshat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's like the most unlikable character in this whole movie. Oh, he's totally detestable. But there were guys like that. There were total oh, guys like there that. Were. Who thought they were like this gift to women and there were girls that bought into this. That's what I also like about this movie also is because you had that relationship. You had the girl who was with the guy who cheated on her, treated her like crap, and she did everything to kind of make excuses for it and try to stay with him. I didn't realize until I watched this movie for the podcast that all the pictures in our room were of Joe. Yeah, there all of all, them. There were posters yeah. of Joe. There was pictures of Joe. She was obsessed. She was obsessed. Well, she tried Ew. to kill herself. Yeah. Right. And even when she like said goodbye to Joe, she still is talking about him through the rest of the movie. I, I kind of appreciated that because I knew people like that. I knew people who of were course. obsessed with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And that's what's so relatable about this movie is there are so many scenes that I said, yep, that happened to me. Yep, that happened to me. Oh. I knew that happened to my friend. The only thing we didn't have was a guidance counselor show up to our parties. But outside of that, most of this stuff really happened. Did you have yeah, a Jeremy Piven character who was? Uh, oh yeah, we had yes. we had those guys all the time. Yeah. Was, like Ken super was hyper. That was but Ken he, actually. That was Ken, right? No, I wasn't Jeremy Piven, but I mean, I was more like John Cusack, to be honest, except without the looks. But I was always somebody that was self-analyzing. John Cusack always has had characters that I kind of relate to, whether it be his character in High Fidelity, where he's got all these lists. Because you guys know me, I list everything. All my favorite movies, songs, TV shows. Back in the day, I used to list all my girlfriends from 1 to like 300. Not 300. But basically, Cusack's character is always somebody who kind of self-analyzes himself. He has that cassette recorder where... Where he's recording what's going on in his life and he's talking i believe to Corey. i don't know why he's using mm -hmm. the tape recorder but he's it's to Corey. he's saving all this you know i think he has a thing for Corey sometimes because he looks at her with different eyes than he looks at other people but he's recording oh this is where i took our first meet at the mall and this is the street that she broke up with me and that would be something that i would definitely do just record yourself like that 
Yes. yes. I wonder if he's given her that tape so she can write music. That's kind of how I made that connection. That's an interesting but, take, actually. Because otherwise it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Could be like a no coping sure. method for him. That's uh, what I would think Maybe it's is, something cause... that they taught her in therapy after after she tried to kill herself. Do we know how she tried to kill herself? I know she said it on Wake Up Seattle, mm-hmm. but do we know mm-hmm. what she did? No. no, I don't think they ever indicate what she did. I would pills, imagine probably, it was pills. Most likely, yeah. Probably, most likely. Probably. Pills, but... What I like John Cusack, especially for Lloyd character, it's an ordinary character. He's not even in a extraordinary circumstance. He's in a normal circumstance that yeah, people can relate stuff. to. He's always kind of a character that is normal, except for maybe things like Con Air or Gross Point Blank. Even in <laughs> Gross Point Blank, he's still like Lloyd, but Lloyd who turned out to be a contract killer. You know, right. he's... He's still self-analyzing everything in himself. There's something for me that's endearing about that because I even to this day still self-analyze like there's no tomorrow. He always plays an eccentric type character, but they're always relatable. I had a hard time parts of this movie because Lloyd acts a lot like the character from High Fidelity. I mean, they are almost the same character. Kind of like Lloyd after high school. Really is. If you've seen Serendipity, that character is obsessed with a girl, and it's almost the same type of yeah. obsession. I like to think but this I, is John Cusack playing John Cusack, but well, maybe not. It might be. I mean, it might be, because that's part of the reason why he got the role, because he did bring a self-analyzation to the character that other actors that were up for didn't. He's relatable because he always brings that human element to the character. Now, some of the movies that you just mentioned don't have the same quality of writing that this movie does. And I think that's where you have a perfect combination of a writer meeting an actor inhabiting a character. And that's why this movie is iconic. It's one of those rare times. And I agreed wholeheartedly with one of the critics when they said that Cameron treats these characters as if they're real. When we discussed Almost Famous and we discussed Jerry Maguire, and now this movie, I think that's one of the things that Cameron Crowe does so well. He creates real characters that are tangible. I think that's one of the strongest parts of him as a filmmaker and screenwriter. It goes back to your Roger Ebert review, where Roger Ebert says this movie doesn't rely on gags or gross-out humor. It invests itself into the characters themselves. And you get wrapped up not only in the teenagers, but also in Diane's father's life, Jim's life, where he's struggling. We all know that he's guilty. And that scene where he's in the tub and he is just having a meltdown. You You kind of feel for him because you do believe that he didn't do this for himself truly believe he did do this for his daughter he put himself out there because it sounds like these years that there were tax issues are the years from when he got his daughter to live with him he was determined to give her the best life possible the only thing that he probably bought for himself is that jukebox which was you know but did you did you notice how much the jukebox was nine thousand dollars nine thousand dollars under that ten thousand dollar irs limit I think you hit a point there, Ken, that I don't know if he felt guilty is not the right word, but he wanted to live up to the expectation that she put on him by choosing him over mm-hmm. his her mom. And he couldn't do that. That's when he started to do things that were not above board. Then he pushed the envelope. You feel for his character? The reason I do. you feel for his character is because John Mahoney... He's not in a lot of stuff, but when he's in a movie, he is probably one of the best actors of that era. He's amazing. 
I know he did the stuff on Frasier and was Frasier's dad, but his work prior to even getting on film, when he was part of the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, he won a Tony Award. This guy is an amazing amazing actor yeah in another movie he's a villain and he's just a villain and the person who acts that way is not going to make him likable or relatable because you can see the conflict on his face because he knows he shouldn't like lloyd and he tries everything he can not to like lloyd but he can't get over the charm and how honest lloyd is and i think that's one of the things that when we're talking about lloyd He's the most honest character probably in the whole show. He doesn't put on a face for anybody. What you see is what you get. He's not going to hide who he is. He's just straight up himself. I think all of the other characters look at him and jealous in some ways. And I think that's what John Mahoney's character is. He's kind of jealous of Lloyd because he can't be honest because he's doing something illegal. He's jealous because of that and also because in his world, his daughter is everything to him. She adores him, and now there's competition. Because at the beginning, I think he does like Lloyd. He meets him at the door. He's gracious. In the morning, when she when he brings her home, he points out to her, because she calls Lloyd basic, and he's like, I don't think he's, he's feeling he bad smiles. about it. He's outside, and he's doing that kissing to every side, a wrestler or someone yeah. in a ring. Actually, I had this girl that I was really into when I was about 20 years old. And after like my first date with her and after she went up back into her house, I did the exact same did the exact same thing. I I, kissed in every direction and then I banged down the garage doors and left. They're an apartment complex, so it wasn't her house's garage door. It was like the garage doors that would be uh, separate from the apartment complexes. And I didn't do it because I was thinking, oh, it's a say anything moment. I got to do this. That was just natural for me. But then later on, I I said to myself, that's where I got that from. And that's why I relate to this movie so much. But going back to the point, for whatever reason, he doesn't think he's a threat yet. But he kind of likes Lloyd because of how he's treated his daughter. And he respects that to a certain extent. Here's a trivia question for you. John Mahoney and John Cusack were both in a movie together a year before this came out. Name that movie. Eight Men Out. Yes, Eight Men Out. out. John Sales' brilliant movie about the Black Sox scandal. So I agree with you, Ted. I think he was a very underrated actor. He did pass away a few years back. Uh, We did talk about him briefly in The American President. Because he played uh, mm-hmm. like the head of oh the, the yeah the political action committee election committee yeah. yeah he was good in that small part there he's always been somebody who is commands attention but yeah the stage is his first love and you could see that he's first a stage actor don't the only thing I wish he didn't do in this movie was sing uh, Ricky don't lose that number because that was <laughs> that was yeah. very good the other movie that he really is a tour de force in is Primal Fear. And that's interesting because you say he isn't in a lot of things, but I bet you we could probably name a lot of movies that he's probably been in. If we went down his IMDb list. We've hit the most popular ones. He's got some, he's got big parts in a lot of movies. Yeah. Those are what he's really known for. Yeah. Amazingly enough, he went to the same college that my wife and I went to. He went to Quincy University. Did he? Do you guys trying to him out there? They do have a picture of him up at the main administration building. Did they name anything after him? No. No. Because the guy who was the acting teacher, the professor, I actually did a, a little bit of a play with him. He's actually the guy who taught John Mahoney back then. So that was kind of cool. Interesting uh, movies that he's been in. Moonstruck. 
Yes. Um, yeah, Moonstruck. Yes, in Moonstruck. The Russia yep. House. One of my favorite movies that I don't get to watch enough, Article 99, In the Line of Fire. Yep. Reality Bites. Oh, yeah. He has been in a, a good number of movies. I really like his performance here. I buy him as this dad who has a secret. I think it's very interesting that when everything blows up in his face is when he's decided to move on from his daughter to go back into dating. And he goes to buy the luggage and he's flirting with the mm-hmm. lady behind the counter. And to me, it sounds like that he's transitioning out of his daughter's life because she's going to London and he's going to be by himself. And I find it interesting that all of a sudden everything is heading downhill. Credit cards are not working. His assets are frozen. I think it's just really well made how we see the progression of each character throughout the movie. I think Cameron Crowe uses his time well here to tell a story. The only thing I would like to have known is why did she pick her dad over her mom? I'm assuming, this is my backstory, that her mom cheated and made her dad feel bad. And that's why she chose her dad because her dad was loyal. And I say that because when she sees her mom and the guy comes in, it, it seems like he's more important than she is. Early on, after she graduates, gets the car, comes back home, and he gives her a ring that supposedly belonged to her, her mom. Do you think that is for her mom's ring, or do you think it was one of the uh, people? That's one of her, the purchases. Her mom gave it to her dad. She says, this is the no. one thing your mom gave yes, me. Yes, he did say that. Yeah, that's but... what he says. It was not anything that he gave her mom or anything like that. Why would he say that? That seems like because so he's got to cover his tracks. He's got to cover his tracks. But, if, yeah, but you listen to the listen to what the IRS guy says. Does he give a yeah. lot of gifts? Yeah, does, does he give he a give... lot of gifts? It, that's all. That's totally that. He's and it was in that bin where all the money was. That secret exactly. locked bin. Yeah, I'm going to give him benefit of the doubt here. I think he doesn't have to give that particular lie. He doesn't have to tell her. Yeah, he does. He, can't, know, he just bought he can't, her a car. He can't, he can't tell her where he got the money to buy that. Does he tell her where he got the money to buy the car? That car is under 10000 bucks in 89. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm it's, sure it, it's a stripped sure down tempo with a manual transmission. Right, which right. he doesn't yeah. teach her how to drive until Lloyd does. Which is one of the nicest scenes in the whole it movie. It is a fun scene. Go yeah. on. Yeah, it's a fun scene. I mean, I remember back in the 80s, a number of my friends had manual transmission cars. One of my friends tried to teach me how to drive one, and it didn't take. In fact, I was I afraid I was going to ruin his transmission. I had a manual for quite a while. If I had a choice, I actually prefer it. It's harder to find him now. I still like the idea, though, that he was married and there was this no. one thing in his marriage that he kept. The one thing that his wife gave him outside of his daughter. The um, ring? That, yeah. I'm not buying it. No, she wouldn't have given that to him. We just don't know the backstory yeah. on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm not buying it. I think it was yeah, a, an no, indicator at the beginning of... of all the telltales of the crimes. I almost think it has more value giving her this ring than it did the car because of the sentimental value. That's why I'm going to go with it. You guys can disagree with me, but I think the way he loves his daughter, I think giving her something that meant a lot to him says a lot about their relationship. I would buy that a whole lot more if he would have said that this was your grandmother's or something like that. Yeah. Obviously, it was a contentious divorce because she ended up having to go to court and testify to which person she wanted to go live with. This was not an easy divorce whatsoever. kind of judicial system allows a child to choose which parent to go with. You'd be surprised. My wife had to do that. Not as much in today's society, but during this time period... She didn't, when they got divorced, it was years later when she turned 12, right around the time when this character, the character would have had to have chosen. So yeah, she had to choose too. 
usually kids would choose their mothers over their fathers just because the mothers usually, when when I grew up, moms were more into their kids' lives than their fathers were. Never and, know. In this case, he seemed pretty into her. You don't get a whole lot of her mom. Very she superficial, seems, doesn't she? And very into the guy that she's with. Yes. And so I'm assuming that mom's guy hopping. I buy Ken's story that she cheated on John Mahoney's character more than John Mahoney's character gave her a ring that was from his wife. I concur. And maybe so, but I mean, there is that this guy isn't dating and everything is invested in his daughter for the last six years. And that could be from the hurt of that relationship. And sometimes we carry things that remind us of hurt relationships. Because we also see that with... Corey's character, but she keeps all these pictures of him, even though keeps on lying to her and tries to sleep with her. And even when she says goodbye, she doesn't have the heart to tear down his posters or get rid of any of his pictures or stop singing well, songs about him. Well, we've all had that friend that's kind of obsessive about the one person that they just can't get over and everything yeah. like that. And no matter and, what and happens, they can't. And I did that too. They I mean, can't I, get over. I didn't have that musical talent. I just made tapes or sang karaoke. I can understand to a certain extent why a person would be do that. And then you have the other friends who really don't have much in this movie. You have one that just basically says, let Lloyd make his own decision. And then you have the other girl who basically just kind of nods her head, you know, (laughs) and he doesn't have any guy friends. And he acknowledges that and he tries to connect See, and, and this is where I connected with Lloyd's character because I was similar. I had a lot of friends who were females. I mean, I did have guy friends in high school too, but for a long time in high school that I had a lot of female friends and I totally understood where he was coming from on that aspect. And we come back around to this. I think that's one of the brilliant things of this movie is because the characters are so realistic and they feel real. Everybody can find something in one or all of these characters, some aspect of themselves or their life experiences. I think that's endearing. I think that Cameron Crowe finds that in almost every movie he's done, those characters are real. Not so much after Almost Famous, but definitely everything before Almost Famous. I think I feel the most real in this movie. Just thinking about how Lloyd deals with the breakup is so real to me. He goes back and forth between trying to get her back and doing anything possible to get her back and then trying to put up a wall. Like, I'm not going to go back to her. I'm a guy. I have pride. You know, that's something that I would probably say if I got hurt and was still being rejected. But at the same time, I had friends that would tell me, hey, move on, you know, and find another girl and do this and do that. And I'd be like, no, I want her. And I see that struggle back and forth. And I so relate. I think this movie works better for me than, let's say, Almost Famous, Jerry Maguire movies like that because it happened right at the same time I was a high schooler. So I relate better with these characters. I I can't relate with people who are with the band and hanging out with the band or covering the band or Jerry Maguire or football player. I can relate, though, with Lloyd and I can relate to his friends and I can relate to every single character because Every character that I see here, I saw these characters in high school and into my early 20s. It's just amazing all the emotions that are played out 
in this movie, and I think this movie is one hour and 40 minutes long. And there's so much nuggets in this movie. It's amazing how much he was able to put into this in such a a short movie. It's not a short, short movie, but it's not a two hour, two hour and 15 minute movie that we've been reviewing in the past. Somehow he's able to get all these emotions from my teenage life into an hour and 40 minute film. It's incredible. Well, it moves. There's no wasted movement in the entire movie. That's to be commended. I think both of you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that the deleted scenes were of no consequence whatsoever. I think that that's a judicious director doing his best. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the characters from Jerry Maguire are almost famous or relatable, but they feel real. They feel like they're tangible and that they're living, breathing things. He has also a knack for finding the right actor for the right role. I can't think off the top of my head, what other major roles has Ioni Sky been in? Because she's really good in this movie, and you'd think this would have platformed her to stardom or other roles, unless she chose not to. Her career isn't big. No, no it's not. So before this movie, she was in The Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon. And then after this, just bit parts here and there, like Gas Food Lodging, Wayne's World, Gun Crazy. She was in Wayne's World? Yeah, she had a, a very brief part in Wayne's World. One movie that I remember her in was Fever Pitch. She played a friend of Drew Barrymore's. Okay. She, oh, up, wow. That's right. I completely forgot about that. I saw her a couple years ago when they did the 30th anniversary reunion and like the shows like Today Show were interviewing her. But she hadn't had any major starring roles in any big name movies one thing i choice i don't know if that was her choice or not maybe that's just the path that was taken one thing i would say that ted was saying about actors and how cameron crow chose the right actors i think people behind the scenes were perfectly added here so i was looking at who edited this picture and a guy by the name of richard marks not the singer richard marks has been helped edit movies like little big man and serpico and the godfather 2 it's got some street cred He's got some street he's, cred. He's yeah. got Apocalypse Now, Terms of Endearment. He's a, the Coppola guy. Yeah. A lot of the people from Terms of Endearment Terms were actually Endearment. used to work on this film. And some people compared this movie to Terms of Endearment in some ways. You can kind of see it a little bit. As far as Ioni Sky here, I go back and forth on her character quite a bit on this movie. Even her performance. Her performance is not the best here, I don't think. I believe that she's heartbroken, but on the scenes where you should really look and see somebody who's heartbroken and really broke up over trying to figure out things, I don't see her having the same struggle as the other characters. She never makes me believe the reason why she breaks things off with Lloyd. I know it's because everything's going on with her dad, but she never makes me believe it. Because she doesn't believe it. There's some acting choices I don't necessarily buy into, probably in the minority with that. I don't think you are, because I think a lot of people are are seeing what you saw with Ioni Sky, and that could be why she didn't get any other acting roles. I kind of agree with both of you to a certain extent. However, the scene in the car, I'm going to disagree. And here's why. I was in a relationship 
where that kind of happened, where it was a breakup, but it didn't seem like a breakup at first. It seemed like just needed some space. And like John Cusack was good with it. And then all of a sudden he realizes, wait a second, did we just break up? I was in a relationship like that, where that almost exactly happened verbatim, except the pen. And I never heard of a pen <laughs> being be used great. in any type of That's relationship. That's a bag move, by the way. Daddy's girl and kind of does everything daddy says. Daddy says and that a line da- And works. she's never been in love before. No. This is the first time, first crush. I don't think she really knows yeah. how to react to these feelings. But it sounds like she had a lot of boyfriends because when he answers the phone, uh, oh, yeah. when Lloyd calls, he's like, is this the guy with the Ford Mustang? Is this yeah. the guy with uh, the Dotson? No, you don't know me, but I buy that. But I think her performance at the beginning, it's a little bit uneven. I also know that she's a British-born actress, so she's also playing an American role. When I listen to some of her interviews, she sounds different than what she does in the movies. So I thought that was interesting. And she kind of had a little bit of a crush on Cusack during the um, the filming of this. Sometimes she comes off being a little stale, but then some other times she comes off being warm. And I wonder if that's just her character in general. Her character is somewhat secluded. She's kind of been kept from the rest of the world. She's taking extra classes. Her social skills probably are not the best in the world. So I'm going to play it off as being the character more than the actress because of how the character is based. The scene that I have the big one of the biggest problems with. One of the critics thought it was the best scene in the movie, and I couldn't disagree more. Is when she tells her dad where she's been after they've spent the night together. I understand that she's being completely honest, and we're setting that stage for that betrayal and how bad that betrayal will be to her. That he's lied to her. I don't know if this is delivery or script. Or a combination of both. But the way she tells her dad that they spent the night together and that they slept together, she starts it off like she feels guilty. And if she didn't want to do this, when she was fully on board with the whole thing, and she plays at the beginning of that almost like he forced her to. I was like, wow, that's getting very uncomfortable, and that's totally not what happened at all. That scene just doesn't work for me. It's definitely, in my opinion, not the best scene of the movie like the one critic thought it was. Because she comes off like he guilted her into doing it. I was like, whoa, that came out of left field. I agree with the critic that it is a a very poignant scene. And I agree with what you said about setting up betrayal with her and her father. But I didn't think the scene was very awkward at all because she's trying to kind of do a, I don't want to say a play by play, but she's trying to do kind of like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and trying to explain it to her father a little bit robotically, if you will. Yeah. It did seem... That's a good way to describe it. It was very robotic. Like It was like she was describing a, what did you do at the park today? It wasn't like describing, I don't know if she lost her virginity. She probably did. Yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming they both did. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Cause, cause... I don't know because she did have boyfriends before. I, the way you said it, Eric, I wanted to Are say Diane, sure? Diane Court, now played by Joe Buck. I don't think she had Joe Buck. I don't think she had any boyfriends prior to him. Well, and I then don't who's think all that... these guys with all these cars? I think what happened was nobody had ever seen her at the high school, and now all these guys. Oh, she might have been dating older guys. It's not uncommon for somebody who's 18, 17, 18 years old to date somebody. Maybe. I never got the impression that she had ever been on dates or anything like that before. But I never got the impression that this was her first time. I never got that impression. felt much, much, much more confident in the backseat of that car than he did. Than he did, clearly. And I'll be honest, that scene 
is my favorite scene in the movie just because yeah, of the raw it's... motion of, yeah. of the two characters in that scene are just full tilt in that moment. With him it, shaking. It's very, it yeah, very touching. sweating and shaking it's... and the course, you know, you got uh, Peter Gabriel in the background. I mean, it, it was perfect. And she's making him feel comfortable. Right. Then the next morning when she's telling her dad, it's like he made her. I, never, has, even, I never took. He has Corey to talk to about these things. The only person she has is her dad. So she's going to talk to him like he's her bestie. She's going to go through all the emotions. Wow. And because I think this is true emotions. You got to think of what she might be going through. Because there are pressures that a guy puts on a girl to make him feel that they need to give it up sooner than, you know, than later. Did you ever get the feeling that Lloyd did anything like that? No, but I never got the feeling that she was alluding to that either. He might never have given her any pressure like that. It might be the pressure that she felt on her own. And when she's telling her dad at the end, I end up jumping his bones. Right. That's not a phrase that you would expect coming out of her mouth. And she even says that he says he backed off and he's like, she respected her wishes, but she jumped on him him anyway. anyway. Right. But it it sounds like those expectations that she thought he had for her were self-imposed. And I get what you're saying. The last time I watched it, I finally got that impression. But I think that's acting then, not necessarily the writing then. And I understand what you're saying. There needed to be a little bit more nuance there. Ultimately, I think that scene with her and her dad, it's setting up for the betrayal. Yeah, because she could tell him everything and he can't tell her. He can't. He couldn't tell her anything. Well, talk about Mahoney's reactions to that, too, when his daughter is telling him about her kind of in shock a little bit he's He's a little bit in shock but he doesn't flip out he doesn't flip out because he asked for it because he demanded her to tell her everything basically when she walked in the door because this is the first time that she is not called called. and so now he wants the whole truth and nothing but the truth and then we see from there he's forcing her to end it with her because he sees that she's in love with him and he the last thing she wants to do is fall in love with a guy a slacker and not just a slacker, for what I think you wish any for. guy. Right. Any guy that would take her away from going to England, any right. guy. This guy's a threat. The other guys, I didn't think he thought they were threats because they were probably just the flavor of the week or month or whatever it was. Jeez. Um, I'm not saying all. she's a slut. I, I never got the impression that she even went on a date. No. I, then who, who I never are these got guys? That. These guys probably saw her at the graduation and then wanted to ask her out. So there was like a line of guys that were waiting like, hi, my name is Joe. I drive a Cadillac. Yeah, that's kind of what they were kind of doing. He knew knew by the cars they pulled up when they picked up his daughter. Right. Let me ask you guys this. I told you what my favorite scene was. Ken, what was your favorite scene in the movie? It's probably when he is kissing each direction of of the air and stuff. I totally relate. But again, I love his reactions to the breakup. It is so believable. His back and forth by wanting her and then trying to put up a strong front like no way he'll ever get hurt. He even says it when she comes back. She, I never want to hurt you again. He goes, hurt me again? Never. Even then, he's trying to put up some type of shield. But then he goes back with her anyway. And I love it because that's exactly how I would do it. I have lots of favorite scenes in this movie. I am ashamed of myself for not watching this in the past number of years because this movie is Beautifully made. What about you, Ted? If there's a scene that really pops for me and has the most poignant and touching moment for me is when he's been invited for dinner and they're sitting at the table 
And you know how his family life goes, and you know that he's living with his sister, and the family unit is very disjointed. And Lloyd is watching her and her dad tell that story. After that story's over, Lloyd looks at him and he goes, I've never talked like that with anybody. And you can kind of tell that he's sad, that he doesn't have anybody in his life that he's connected with, especially as a parental type figure or in that way. And you can tell that he's looking for that. I think that's one of the best moments of the movie for me. And of course, I like the scene where they're in the backseat of the car. And it's very out of type for these type of movies. She's the one that has to basically calm him down and ease him through everything. I think that that's a very real moment, too. I understand that she likes the part where he tells her to walk around the glass. But if there was a moment that I fell in love with the character of Lloyd and was endeared to that character, it's right there at the dinner table when he's very open and he's very honest. Like I said, he's the most honest character in the entire movie. I love the fact that you're bringing up this part. I really do. I feel the same way that you do about this part. Is Lloyd at his most Lloyd. He's nervous, but he's also honest at the same time. And he's amazed at this relationship. And he speaks the truth and everybody looks at him like oddly. And I don't get it. Even the father looks at him like he's appreciative and annoyed at the same time. This is the perfect boy to to date your daughter. He's respectful. He comes to the door and shakes your hand, introduces himself. I'm sure those other guys that came with the other cars, they didn't stop by to meet the dad. That's why he only knows them by the car. He is a legitimate good guy. As the character uh, Corey says, I'm a good person. You, Lloyd, are a great person. I feel that way because I think I would be happy if I was Lloyd. I think he could be a little bit more ambitious of what he wants to do with his life. You know, Ken, you still can be Lloyd Dobler. You can still be Lloyd. It's not too late to alter your personality. In a lot of ways, I am like Lloyd and I'm like a lot of the characters that John Cusack plays. I also look at this character as being an extension almost to the better off dead character. He's kind of like that same good guy, always wants to do what's right with love and with friends and family. He's always that perfect son, that perfect boyfriend. And the fact that he is that and he's being rejected by the father and by her to a certain extent. I've been through that. I've had friends go away saying, the parents didn't like you. Aren't you like a parent's wet dream? I'm like, these parents did not like me. I don't know what I did. It does happen. I, there's so many scenes here that are just so good. I mean, his relationship with his nephew, that's kind of nice to see. That tells me that he's going to be a great father one day. Wish we had, would have had a little bit more interaction with his real-life sister. I think if anything could have been cut out of the movie, it might have been that just because there wasn't enough of a relationship between him and his sister to really... Do I love the part where Diane calls Lloyd back and his sister like runs to the bathroom because that's his office? I kind of like that. That's kind of like a sibling rivalry. It's like, oh, your girl's calling you? I'm going to run and use your safe spot. Outside of that, she was kind of a waste of a character. This is a fun movie. I wanted to say it's a romantic comedy, but I'm going to call this a romantic drama. I'm not calling it a romantic comedy. I'm going to call it a it's romantic drama. It's not a drama. rom-com. It's not. No, no it's, it's not, not a rom-com. Definitely more of a, of a drama. And I'm going to say this is the first one that I liked growing up. So this one is the first one. All the other ones are kind of romantic comedies. They don't count. But this is the first romantic drama that I can remember falling in love with. Awesome. Let's talk about our reviews on this. We'll wrap this movie up. Ted, we're going to start with you. This is an amazing movie. 
I think we've touched on a lot of things that make this just a completely solid movie from beginning to end. There's no wasted minutes. There's no, oh, this needed to be cut or something else needed to be done here. Any criticism you have are more quibbles than criticisms. And for a first-time director to come out with something like this, you can tell that he knew what he wanted to do, what the type of movie he wanted to make. Cameron Crowe had written Fast Times at Richmond High, but he didn't get to direct Fast Times at Richmond High. And I think this is the type of movie that he wanted to make. He felt that he knew these characters. And there's a connection. These characters are probably some of the most memorable characters that have been on screen definitely from the 80s and early 90s it took these type of movies to a whole new level and i love the music here as well and that's a hallmark that we've touched on with all of cameron crowe's movies it adds another dimension to the movie this movie is a solid b plus for me it's probably not in the top 50 but it's right there it's a movie that i'm going to come back and i'm going to watch again i enjoy the movie i connect with the movie i love the movie awesome I'm right with you there, uh, Ted. This movie is one of my favorites. For Cameron Crowe to to knock it out of the park on his first attempt is a rare feat. It's just an incredible directorial debut. I love the music. I love the soundtrack. I love the cast. I love the editing. I love everything about this movie. And it's kind of funny that we were talking about the deleted scenes and the extra scenes and that they have actually no place in this movie at all. It was cut perfectly. I love the characters in this movie. There's really very little about this movie I would change. And I'll be honest, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Uh, This is a movie I watch once a year, minimum. I was really excited to watch it again. There's really nothing bad. I'm going to go with all of the reviewers on this. There's nothing bad I can say about this movie. And I would really like to speak to someone who has something bad to say about this movie. Someone who actually gives us some type of a a negative review. I'd really like to uh, have a discussion about it. So for me, I was debating this one, but I'm going full tilt on it. This is an A- minus for me. This is definitely a, a top 20 movie for me. Maybe top 25, but it's right up there. I love this movie. I love watching it, and I will continue to love watching it. All right, Ken, we're wrapping up with you. Take us home. Say Anything was my choice for this Cameron Crowe revisit. We only did a couple movies at the beginning when we first started this podcast, so it was kind of nice to kind of come back to Cameron Crowe, and we're giving him a couple more movies, this being uh, the one I choose, and the next one is going to be Singles. This movie is one of the best debuts for a director that I've ever seen. There isn't a misstep here. Lloyd's character could be anybody. It could be any one of us. It could be any one of you. And I think that's what's so endearing about him is that we are all kind of Lloyd or we're all kind of Diane. A lot of us fit in some way into these characters. And if you don't fit in these two characters, I bet you found a character in this movie that you could relate to. I just saw so many of my friends in this movie and a lot of myself. How has it been that it's been years since I've actually watched this movie? It's not the one that makes me laugh the most, and it's not the one that makes me cry the most. It's not a scary movie. It's not all that. I'm going to agree with Ted on the solid B+. I think this might be my favorite Cameron Crowe movie, though. I think I like it a tad more than Almost Famous. And that's only because I could relate with the characters a little bit more. The music in Almost Famous is superior. 
love the acting in it. It's just, how can I relate to somebody who follows a rock band all over the country? And how can I relate with somebody that writes for Rolling Stone, but is not old enough to even graduate high school yet? I can't relate to any of those characters like I can relate to Lloyd. And so that's why I give this movie the edge over Almost Famous. It's a movie I'm going to go back to. It's a movie now that I own on digital. So now I can just flip it on anytime I want. I'm going to see myself flipping it on more and more in the future. Solid B+. John Cusack at his John Cusackness. This movie started the trend of his type of character. And I totally agree with Ted. This is perfectly edited. I mean, I already had stated this movie is only an hour and 40 minutes long. And it hits every heartstring, every feeling that I went through as a teenager up into my early 20s. And even to a certain extent to when I met my wife. My wife dumped me twice. You know, before we actually got married. And I remember feeling like, you know what? This is it. I'm going to move on and I'm not going to deal with her. And then all of a sudden, boom, there she is coming back. And that reminds me here of this movie where Lloyd is looks like he's moving on finally. And that's when she needs him. Even into my late 20s and into my 30s, this movie has some meaning to it, too. Very cool. We're all in agreement. It's a great movie. I'm kind of with you on that, Ken. It, it's slightly a little higher than Almost Famous in my book. I don't remember what I gave mm. Almost Famous, but this one kind of tips the scales for me a little bit more. I still love Almost Famous. I'm not a hey, Almost Famous is an incredible movie. I'm not taking anything away from it, but this one for me tips the scales a little bit. So just one quick thing. Hats off to Chicago in this movie. The band. Hats off to Chicago acting. Oh. Because even though this is set in Seattle, three of your major characters, Corey and then John Mahoney and John Cusack, all Chicago people, and have all been involved with the Chicago theater scene. Hats off to Chicago. They pulled this off really well. And of course, like I said, Mahoney was part of the Steppenwolf Theater, which is world renowned. Or is John Cusack a White Sox fan? He's a Cub fan. No, he's a is Cub, he a Cub fan. fan? But, I don't know why I thought he was a Sox but, fan. He tries to play it off that he's a Chicago fan, but he's gotcha. a, he's a he's He shows a up fan. for Chicago White Sox playoff games in World Series. Showing we'll that cut he's... him some slack. It's not as bad as the living Belushi. Oh. James Belushi? Yeah. Hey, let's not forget Jeremy ex- Pippen's in this movie, and he's also from Chicago. Oh. oh. I, tr- I purposefully left him out. Doesn't Jeremy Piven, uh, his family, yes. run some his, type of... Yeah, his family runs... It's some sort of acting school yeah. or class that they run, and that's where Cusack met Willie Taylor, and that's how they got involved then with this movie. Yes, Jeremy Piven's family is also very involved with the Chicago theater scene. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Say anything. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will be uh, reviewing Singles, another movie by Cameron Crowe, which I'm looking forward to seeing because I haven't seen it in, oh, I don't know, probably since it came out. It's been a long time it's for me as well. It's been a long time, Same. so I'm looking forward to opening up But it's going to be game. a blast from the past because this was Ken's end of high school. Singles, this music, this is totally my high what is, school. What is Singles, 92, 93? 94, 90, yeah, 94, 93, 94. Okay. All right. So it's right in the heart of Nirvana and the whole grunge movement. Okay. It's where I existed. Well, rock on, gentlemen. Ted, where can they find us out there? Oh, we can be found on Twitter at, at the movie underscore marquee with two E's. And whatever platform you're listening to us on, and just give us a, a rate and review that helps us get noticed and helps us be able to bring in more listeners. We don't take any money from any advertisers or anything like that, but your rates and reviews help us 
to get noticed by other people. But tips so are accepted anything, and encouraged. Yeah. If you want to send us some <laughs> anything money, to, we'll, we'll take it. Anything to help us get out there a little bit more to people would be gratefully appreciated. And what's new in the Facebook world, Ken? You can join us by joining the Movie Marquee on Facebook. Some things to let you know for future episodes. We are planning on doing a Christmas episode. Probably by the time you hear this, we'll probably have our poll out. So you get to choose what Christmas episode that we've nominated. There will be six movies. Two of us each will nominate a movie that you'll get to vote on. Um, and then after that, we're going to go to our Lethal Weapons series to finish out Richard Donner as our last director that we're doing in this series. And then we're going to be jumping around different topics. Uh, so we might be doing sports next time or favorite 80s movies or uh, movies that Ted likes, but nobody else has ever heard of before. <laughs> so things of that nature. Join us on Facebook and feel free to comment on maybe a movie that you like, something that maybe you want us to do, or a reason why you like a particular movie or why you don't like a particular movie. So we can have some conversations. We enjoy talking about movies and that's why we do this. You know, the greatest Christmas gift I can get this year is? What is that, Eric? That I don't have to watch Elf again ever again. Well, that's what we're doing for and, our Christmas yeah, movie. Yeah, right. Elf again every year. Eric's yes. going to walk in his house and there's going to be like Elf posters, Elf yeah. like ornaments all over his house. Yeah. Now now I've encouraged the Facebook poll. Everyone's going to want Elf again, right? Do Elf, do Elf. Do Elf, do Elf. Yeah. Listen to a past episode. You'll see my review of Elf. It's always encouraging. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, everyone. Thank you, everybody. And now we return to regular programming. See you at the movies. See you next time at the Movie Marquee. Mm-hmm.